and welcome once again to Core Ideas, a paleo-limnology podcast where we delve into all things lake sediments. As usual, we are your hosts, myself, Adam Jesiorski. And Josh Thienpont. Thanks for coming back once again. And today, well, we're on our 10th episode, so that's, I guess, exciting. And thanks for sticking all around for those first few. But we decided that given it's, I don't know, a bit of a milestone, um, we would use this as an opportunity to bring someone else on, to have a third voice to contribute to our discussion as we go into the weeds. And this time we're going to talk about the questions we ask in paleolimnology. Uh, and I guess uh, in this time of social distancing, et cetera, it makes sense to find someone uh, local and because of that, and because I think she has some interesting things to contribute to this topic. We have uh, Jenny Carosi, who uh, excitingly uh, is in the same house as me. So we're married. And so she is in the basement here with me locally. And we are going to talk a little bit about asking questions. Right. Thanks for having me in my own basement. Yeah. Cool. Thanks Welcome for, to the show. Well, it's usually, it's the podcast studio after a certain time uh, on a, a normal mm. day. And we, uh, I did say, we did say that we weren't going to make this like an interview, so it's not going to be a kind of question style, but I do have uh, one question I would like to start with, Jenny. Would you... Uh, classify yourself as a core ideas podcast super fan or just a regular fan <laughs> never listened to an episode in my life <laughs> <laughs> well that's well i know that's not true because well, i made you listen to the first episode before anyone else had heard it <laughs> right. that's true and i i did also listen to your field work episode uh i guess a couple episodes back uh and i felt personally attacked by your knots tirade <laughs> you lose one anchor in one arctic tundra lake and and suddenly you never allowed to forget it ever for the rest of your life that is true um but we won't we won't uh we won't dwell on those topics or well, i think Jenny it's funny to... that also could relive the uh the canoe incident a little bit that we, we could, experienced yeah. together yeah that's, that's i was true. the <laughs> other other person manning the canoe with adam that's when right. we went overboard so there you go we should have had you on for that talk. That you should actually, have, yeah. Think about it. Anyway, <laughs> so moving on. Uh, today, we are going to talk a little bit about some of the common questions that are asked in paleo. Not specific ones, but more how they're asked and the ways in which paleo uh, investigations, studies, whatever it is, theses, degrees, whatever they are, uh, frame the questions that they commonly ask. And we, one of the reasons that it's useful to have Jenny on uh, is that I think uh, it's fair to say that as a new faculty member, a relatively new faculty member, you spend a fair bit of time thinking about questions and how you ask, what, what it is your research is interested in asking. Yeah, absolutely. I spend a lot of my time writing grant applications so that people will give me money to do research and I need to come up with interesting questions to ask that uh, uh, will hopefully get funders excited. Uh, and I also have students that are are starting to come through the lab now. So working with them to teach them how to ask research questions, which actually turned out to be a bit of a um, more challenging task than I had originally appreciated. I, I, I've forgotten what a skill it is to learn how to ask good research questions. And hopefully over the next few years, I'll get to start answering some of them. Well, so uh, just to clarify there, uh, so is it difficult? 
asking, uh, getting questions for the students or bringing students in to ask the questions there? Uh, working with the students to teach them how to learn to ask research questions. So to, to give them the idea of uh, things that they might want to test and what is a testable kind of Exactly. Project. Yeah, You would give them a standard um, idea of a project, you know, look at, at this lake, at this problem or, or issue that you want to address. Um, but what exactly your research questions are, again, is, is something that I try to, to involve them in because uh, it is a, an important skill to learn. And, and again, as I, I mentioned, one that actually does take a bit of um, skill to learn how to do. Uh, it's actually funny. I remember being a brand new PhD student myself and being told we have a, a fridge of mud, full of mud from Nova Scotia lakes, come up with a thesis and, and trying to, to figure out exactly what questions I was going to ask. And I actually remember sitting at the, the coffee table with you, Adam, trying to, well, you were trying to teach me how to, to come up with research questions to ask. So perhaps another reason why I'm a, an appropriate guest for today. And was I helpful in that exercise? Uh, I think so. I remember being frustrated. Uh, I that didn't know you that well then. The, the British uh, contrarianism uh, was new to me. But, I don't know uh, what you're talking about. <laughs> That's but funny. I got a PhD in the end, so you must have been helpful. That's right. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, um, I think I said this quote to you like, probably that, at that time. And, uh, you know, I've said, I think I'm sure I've said on the podcast at least once, like, um, finding answers or someone once told me a long time ago that finding answers is easy. Um, but finding questions, uh, answers to the questions that you're interested in can be quite difficult. And, um, you know, that is kind of like, it's step one. You can't really move forward at all until you at least have an idea of where you're going. And then, you know, you also have to be very careful that, you know, the procedure that you're following is as actually capable of answering the question that you're interested in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we talked Absolutely. about that last week on the uh, grad studies uh, podcast, just about different degrees and the role that uh, the student trainee plays in defining the project and how it changes through the different degrees. And I think that's something that kind of ties into this as you think about, you know, maybe we're talking about higher level stuff, but it needs to be distilled down to what it is that an actual thesis project is going to be uh, centered around. And that will depend on what kind of degree that is. So, yeah, yeah that's something to keep in mind. And whether you're a master's, PhD, whatever level, you still need to ask good questions to answer. For sure. No, I was just, I was thinking more about the scale than the actual yeah. questions themselves. Yeah. yeah. And it happens at multiple levels. Like, mm -hmm. you know, your big proposal level uh, questions, but also any potential, I guess in larger graduate student projects like PhDs particularly, uh, the spinoffs, uh, potential chapters where something comes up and you're like, oh, that's a good question. And I think, you know, we have the data to address it in some way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. Maybe that's something that you you take on as a postdoc or, or something like that. So there's lots of ways that you can expand upon those, even if they don't, you know, if they're a little more tangential to what it was you originally planned to do. Yeah. That's usually the way of it. One question leads to like a dozen others once you start getting into it. Mm -hmm. So I guess uh, when we were thinking about this, we decided to break 
how we ask questions or discussing questions in paleolimnology into a few different uh, themes or topics. And the first one would be related to projects that are centered on the concept or the goal of understanding or reconstructing baseline environmental conditions. Uh, the, and these are things we've talked about on, on the podcast and in previous uh, episodes where we talked about either qualitatively or quantitatively trying to determine what conditions were like at some point. And that might be because no one was measuring that environmental variable or we didn't even know that this was going to be a topic of interest at that point. So no one was concerned with it anywhere. Uh, and that's really, I think, would I would say a whole class of questions that are commonly addressed in paleo, uh, paleo studies. Yeah, essentially you have this stressor here that we expect to have some impact on the system, but we weren't monitoring before the stressor was enacted. So we use paleo to say, how did the system change when, when acid rain began, for example? Yeah, acid rain is probably a, a, maybe the best example that we can kind of base a discussion around that on because it, you know, it's historical to paleolimnology. It was one of the first real topics. A lot of people would say paleo cut its teeth. John Small says this all the time that paleo, at least modern paleo cut its teeth in the acid rain debates. Um, and that was, you know, related to questions such as when did conditions change or what were the pre-impact conditions like in that ecosystem or in a range of ecosystems in this whole region? How did that compare to other locations or lakes that have different environmental uh, characteristics? Um, and then after you get to answering those kind of questions, we can expand upon those a little bit to extend and say, has there been any sort of recovery exhibited once the removal of that stressor occurs? And we've gone back to those baseline conditions. And these are really, like, really critical questions in paleolimnology. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's probably safe to say that that all three of us have asked those questions in some capacity in our own research. Yeah, um, because that is, you know, the draw of paleo, because there's not very many ways, other ways you can get at those kind of questions mm -hmm. in terms of comparing what are conditions today like compared to some baseline, depending on the topic, whether you're talking about 100 years ago or a couple hundred years ago or a couple thousand years ago. Or even just five years ago, in some cases, we really do have have not the greatest track record in in monitoring lake ecosystems. It's hard to keep those programs running. So even very recent stressors, we still lack often lack that that essential um, understanding of of pre impact conditions. Yeah, think about all. I think about this occasionally with all the ongoing research on road salt, and that is a stressor mm -hmm. for many environments and we're realizing how much uh, we've impacted ecosystems and it seems like just uh, one of those really recent examples of realizing uh, the impact that we're having yeah like that. I, that's definitely something that i guess there's been some you know baseline chatter i guess you'd say about it for you know since i was a graduate student but it's definitely come screaming to the forefront in just the like last four or five years where, uh, um, even, uh, you know, in the, in the popular press, you're starting to see articles about the long-term impacts of road salt, which is, uh, was not the case five years ago. Yeah, no doubt. 
Um, and, and I would say actually like all of my re- uh, really all of my research falls into these kind of categories, not related to acidification or uh, salt, uh, application at least to the road, but all of my permafrost research, you know, they can all be phrased in this sort of, uh, manner. What, you know, how did permafrost alter the conditions in this lake with reference to what was occurring before that? Can we use those changes as if we can identify them, which it might be harder than, uh, than I may have originally thought to, um, track the timing of these kind of changes. So use the paleo record to put a timestamp on an environmental impact with reference to when baseline, when the system left its baseline condition, I guess is a simple way of drawing that, uh, and, uh you know, from all of my work, I think this is, I, you know, how I've always approached a lot of paleo questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly that's, that's, um, been, um, critical to, to a lot of the work that I've done. Um, you know, my PhD was, um, similar to Adam looking at legacy impacts of acid rain, particularly calcium decline. So trying to see how, how the invertebrates responded, um, in the, the decades following, um, acid rain impacts. Uh, more of my postdoc was on looking at uh, contaminant releases from mining. Uh, again, that's, a, that's a, a classic example of using this idea of paleo as a way to look at baseline conditions, things like metals and, and um, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons are contaminants that are released from mining activities but have natural sources as well. So if you have high concentrations in a lake near a mine, is it high because the mine released it or is it high because um, they're naturally high and that's why we're mining there. So the, so paleolimnology has really been essential for looking at changes in these contaminants over time and seeing, no, they, they really do start to increase after mining operations began. Um, so it, it's kind of the, the, um, I guess really the only way often to get at that question of, of, is this industry having an impact? And we could come up with hundreds of examples, like, you know, every episode, every, I almost said episode, every edition, uh, or volume of the journal of paleo or any journal related to paleo techniques, it's going to be filled with lots of good examples of using these more classic paleo type of questions. Uh, and you know, that's not going to change. That's going to be the case for a long, long time. We'll be mm-hmm. able to continue using paleo techniques to answer these kind of questions. One of the things we thought might be good to expand a little bit upon is to think about some of the other ways and not, not that, you know, you approach it differently from a methodological perspective, but just the ways in which you can, uh, think about different questions that may be slightly different or different, uh, perspective on applying paleo techniques. Uh, and the first thing we talked about and discussed was a little bit about the case where, you may be trying to infer an environmental change, but there's not a good analog environment. There's not a good baseline condition to refer to. And there may be reasons why that's the case. Yeah. Or even just the basic uh, question of, you know, where do you set baseline? Environments are not static. They change all the time Uh, where, you know, with what, what exactly is baseline? How many years of baseline do you need to understand how a system has changed? And and that question, as simple as it seems, is going to vary depending on 
the stressor of interest. Yeah. So before industry pH is a fairly easy That's one. That's a very to, easy to one define. to answer. Yeah. yeah. But if you're looking at, uh, Climate change, that's a harder one because climates have been warmer in the past. So how far back in time do you need to go to get some idea of baseline to know if we've now hit a situation where where we're now moving into a no analog situation or where what we're currently seeing is, is different from anything we've seen in the past. We're truly deviating from natural variability or baseline. And if you push, you know, if you want a longer perspective on baseline in order to encounter more uh, variation in the pre-impact condition, then you end up integrating so much time that, you know, you have this really, really broad environmental kind of perspective on that. And that might be good, but it also may not allow you to detect and infer some of the smaller scale changes that may be happening now. And it becomes, yeah, it becomes sort of a, a back and forth sort of decision as to what baseline conditions would be considered. Mm -hmm. and, and really all this is, is it's showing the nuance in, and again, how we ask questions in paleolimnology, even these seemingly very basic standard questions, again, have a lot of decisions that go into them when you're thinking about what questions you ask and when you're designing your, your study to answer those questions appropriately. I don't know, thinking about this, as I just said a minute ago, that most of my like permafrost thaw related research has always been, I always thought of it as classical sort of condition like what were the conditions before and uh what time did they change but i think it more i've thought about it and more we've kind of discussed it and jenny has students working on this now doing basically almost redoing some of my my graduate work in some cases or planning to do that i think some of these permafrost thawing systems are examples where maybe the questions i don't know maybe the questions needed to be a little bit more uh integrative of some of these ideas that there is a whole range of background environmental conditions and baseline may not be so simple to identify. And that's simply because of the nature of the ecosystem and the way in which permafrost in these systems can be really, really variable. It can thaw and then they can stop thawing and they can thaw a little bit more. And that can really, you know, that can really allow you to have a, a, a challenge as to what those early conditions were like. And I think a, a scale of the change, uh, Part of it is comparing nuanced differences or very, very gradual uh, differences. Whereas if you're looking at acid rain or establishment of a mine and some sort of acid drainage runoff, you know, when your pH changes from six to four, let's say, you are, you know, a hundred times more acidic, right? Because it's a logarithmic scale, but, you know, even with the rate of climate change, uh, you know, in the last couple of dec decades, it's not a hundred times warmer than it was in yeah. the '80s, let's say. So, you know that, you know, it all kind of ties in together. That you know, it's a lot harder to see subtle changes or very gradual changes as opposed to a binary change of something happened, yes or no. Absolutely, and. Also, the the variation that occurs, like how much does the temperature change in a given year perspective in an ecosystem? You don't get a hundredfold changes in pH over the course of just the seasonal environment. So temperature is going to be something that organisms are you know, exposed to variation of uh, over time. See, to me, that's always been one of the advantages of, of using paleolimnology is, is that it it 
cuts through some of that interannual variability. It cuts through some of that noise because a sediment interval is going to be integrating material through the seasons and it's going to be integrating material over the last um, couple years or, or even up to a decade or more. So you're almost, you almost have an averaging effect. Like pale, sediment records are almost in, in some capacity smoothing the records. So it makes it very, very easy to pinpoint regime shifts when they actually occur. Uh, whereas you might not necessarily see those changes as clearly when you're looking um, just over a few years of monitoring records. You might see some big changes and think that's a, a response, but really if you were to step back and have the benefit of decades or more of data, you would see that that's just part of a natural fluctuation. With, with lake sediment records, uh, where you have a big change, it's generally very, very easy to see. So you do lose a lot of the, the resolution at looking at sort of small scale changes, looking at interannual or seasonal variability. But I think they're very well suited to looking for big regime shifts or big changes in, in systems. Yeah. That, and that integrated record, it's um, always been difficult because part of like I've spent some time, you know, over the last how many years trying to reconcile monitoring records uh, from like the Dorset area with paleo records. And it's like a big element of my PhD research was tied around that. And it's always difficult. And part of it is, you know, you get a skeptical eye coming from one side and say, oh, well, you're missing this, that, and the other in the paleo record. But then, it, you know, it cuts both ways because, you know, when you're sampling, even like a really intensive sampling program of multiple lakes is, you know, one afternoon every two weeks. And it's like, so then what is the impact of, oh, you know, the on the day that you were there this year, you caught the holopedium bloom in, um, in uh, late summer, whereas your equivalent, I don't know, late August date last year missed it by a day. And uh, so. Yeah, um, sure. Or you, you were know. there, you know, you were there a little bit after dusk one day because the car broke down or whatever. And you get this like evening bloom of uh, zooplankton coming out. Like there, I agree. There's, uh, oh, I agree with both of you on that one, that there's, a, a bit of that, but I also, when I was talking about the, like the temperature changes, I was thinking about the physiological response of the things we measure in mm. the lake, as opposed to the, the integration of the paleo record, which I agree is going to incorporate a little bit of that. And so you get a little, maybe you get a little bit of both of those kind of components. Mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that that's an interesting use of, yeah. An interesting thing that paleo is sort of unique, uh, in being able to look at in terms of the way in which sediments work 24 mm -hmm. hours a day seven days a week <laughs> like the pages of the history book, book. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but again also to link back to the question that's that's something that's essential about the record that you need to understand when you're asking questions um unless you're dealing with very very well varved sediments you're not going to be asking questions about seasonal variability you're not likely to see the response of of you know a bad storm event from the paleo record because um, that's going to be again diluted from from um, everything else that's going on if it's just a one-off kind of quick event you're, you're very likely to miss it in the paleo record so again that's just about when you're thinking about the questions that you ask again tailoring it to what the method can actually answer 
Yeah, unless, unless they're like catastrophic yes. kinds of changes. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole field of paleo tempestology, but that's that's like hurricane level. Oh impacts. yeah, and and not like it might be a one-off storm, but it leaves a legacy effect in the the lakes. I think that's an interesting thing that that you can try and piece out of some mm-hmm. of the paleo records. But they, it does kind of tie into this idea of, of baseline and and mm-hmm. the analog that you're looking for or not able to uh, consider. And and really, I don't think there's any answers or suggestions even in this other than you kind of have to think about these things and how it relates to the environmental change uh, or question you're interested Mm -hmm. in answering uh, the indicator that you're talking about because diatoms are going to respond differently even different species of diatoms while they're integrated in that slice of the paleo record they're going to be blooming at different times of the year we know that from basic ecology of the organisms so it really is just about kind of thinking sitting and thinking about this as opposed to the way in which you visualize your master's degree is i have to count this many diatom slides or i have to pick this many coronamid head capsules no it's really this is what you're doing to try and get at that question yeah and um it's like all tools you have to be aware of like the you know capabilities versus the shortcomings and pick the right tool for the job. And this is, you know, we covered this on, on a couple levels in past episodes, but in terms of choosing an indicator, but also keeping in mind um, of paleo in general and the type of questions or how you have to phrase the questions uh, to best reflect the answers that the sediments can actually tell you. Mm-hmm. And there's so much potential for paleo to do all of these different things. I think that's one of the kind of cool things as we were scripting out or thinking about what we want to talk about, it's just the number of different kinds of questions you can address with paleo techniques and just, it really is a powerful science. Mm-hmm. And I mean, these, these sort of standard paleo limnology questions again on kind of can lead you to some more interesting questions as well. So for example, maybe your first starting point question is how did this system respond to this stressor? And maybe you find that, uh, it didn't respond the way that you expected it to, or maybe it didn't respond at all when you expected it to. So then you can start to ask the what I think of as the more sort of interesting questions about why. Why did it respond or not respond in in this given way? And and I think Josh, your your permafrost st- stuff from your PhD that you mentioned, I, I sort of see that as falling into into this category. And again, why my lab is starting to re um, rethink some of those those uh, questions again. So just, I guess, for the benefit of people who don't, I, I'm not sure how, how much you've talked about your... Almost nothing. Almost nothing. Yeah. Okay. So um, in the Western... But I assume they've all read my... You know, oh, read of course. Yeah, papers. I'm sure. Yeah. They, they're fully versed <laughs> we should, in your... we, should, we should post it on the website. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just to remind yourself. <laughs> but uh, in the Western Canadian Arctic, where you have... Um, permafrost or soils that have a lot of frozen, um, have a lot of ice in them. When that ice melts, uh, essentially the ground like caves in and you get these massive, um, depressions forming on the shoreline of, of lakes that can sometimes be the size of, of multiple football fields. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they send a whole lot of sediment into the lake. And when you look at lakes that have thaw slumps, and compare them to lakes that don't, even if they're side by side, they're massively different systems. So a thaw slump lake, um, it, it looks like, uh, it looks like distilled water. It's, it's perfectly clear. Uh, and then it's neighboring, um, unimpacted lake is your typical kind of tea stained, um, 
I guess kind of that like yellowy reddish brown color that you would normally expect to get from from these shrub tundra systems. Um, their their chemistry is different. Thoslin lakes have very low nutrients. They have very high conductivity. They have very high major ions. So you would expect, and I, I that was your whole point of your PhD. This is a massive difference. You would expect that when a thoslump forms and the lake changes because of that to become this high conductivity, low nutrient, clear water, clear water, that there would be a massive biological response to that. And and you found that that biological response was actually pretty surprisingly muted. Yeah. muted. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's. Um, where we're kind of going with that now. And it's like, why is that response so muted when you would expect there's, there, these are fundamentally different systems. Um, why are they different? And, and one of the reasons that we're exploring is this idea that thaw slumps are polycyclic. They, they form, they stabilize. Uh, we know it can take decades for a lake to recover from that. And then they reinitiate and they start all over again. Um, so maybe the response is muted because these lakes are prone to getting thaw slumps and they never really fully recover from the last one. So this idea of legacy effects, the the influence of past events on the way that lakes respond to to current stressors. So again, that that's another question that you can really only um, explore when you have the benefit of long time series data, um, which which we can often only get from paleo environmental archives. Yeah, and I'm sure those kind of ideas of legacy effects would apply to other, um, other stressors as well. I would you would think that sort of invasive species introductions, the the influence of previous invaders, even if they're not the same group of species, would influence the organisms living in in an ecosystem. And there's got to be other types of questions that have this legacy uh, component to them. Yeah, on a conceptual level like, like buffering capacity mm -hmm. kind of thing mm -hmm. um but yeah no the thawstone lakes are interesting just due to how non-intuitive they are like just the idea of dumping tons and tons and tons of catchment into a lake making the water clearer still kind of throws me a loop every time yeah and, and and it does to a lot of people like the chemistry of it it seems a little strange something to do with the clay minerals binding to dissolved organic carbon and scouring that out of the lake but we know from uh bottle top experiments that when you put slump material into the water it clears out the lake so it's it is the slump material but uh everything about those systems tends to be these non-intuitive uh just the, the way in which they form, the way in which they stop forming, uh, stabilize and, and occur again. Like the, there's, this is one of the reasons that, you know, there's whole other degrees to go back to mm -hmm. uh, and address these questions. We've been working, we started working on the Thaw Slump Lakes as a lab in, right around the time I started my master's, or the year of my master's in 2007. And uh, as part of a strategic grant, which is one of the Canadian federal government uh, project specific funding packages. And that has produced, uh, you know, a number of different questions related to contaminants associated with these related to the physical changes in the sediments they related to the uh, biological response. At the same time, another group through the IPY work was looking at the modern uh, assemblages of invertebrates, algae, plants, all these different things. So we've had like 10 years of 
studying these things intensively. And I'm not really sure I understand them that much better than I did uh, at the when I started, you know, the reading for my comprehensive, just because there's so much there. And I think a lot of projects probably are the same. The more you look at a research project, the more questions it brings up that you can answer in the future. Yeah, that's that's typically how I define a successful uh, research project is if it generates more questions than you answer, which might seem counterintuitive, but... Hard to defend a PhD like that, but (laughs) (laughs) someone has a stable job. (laughs) But I'm trying to think of an example where somebody did a study and then at the end of it said, well, that's it. Now we know that's done. Forget about it. Never go back to it. That's never the way it works. It always leads you to more questions to answer or to ask and and then answer. I mean, that's the scientific method. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm hmm. Uh, and and because paleo can can answer so many different kinds of questions uh it really fills you know fits into that framework quite well um so it it is a really good part of the paleo method because of that i feel like i'm being a uh cheerleader for the paleo limnological method (laughs) on the core ideas podcast which seems pretty counterintuitive given who our audience probably are (laughs) but it's like preaching to the choir that's okay we all like we all like to hear we all know that it's it's the best science (laughs) <laughs> um anyway so gauntlet thrown down yeah take that it's the core ideas podcast quantum physics <laughs> yeah for sure cosmology but the last thing we wanted to talk about is uh and it, and it leads on from that it's not uh, a t- separate topic but the idea of uh the ways in which some uh questions can be are maybe a little bit bigger picture or more integrative and are incorporating not just a single project in this case or a single degree but multiple different projects oftentimes incorporating research that's much broader than even a single research group or laboratory uh, is a way of addressing some of the big picture environmental concerns on the planet at the moment but as a from a perspective of paleo uh as a contribution to that. Or um, the contribution of paleolimnology to more theoretical questions as well. Can it, it would also tie into big picture ideas. Sure. So yeah. we, we often think about, um, it can be easy to kind of slide into this tendency to think of paleolimnology as being more of an applied, um, asking more applied type questions, like how does this mine impact the lake? But you can also use lake sediment records to answer more theoretical questions about how time influences um, ecological processes. One of the, the, um, papers that I always go to when I'm looking for inspiration, when I'm looking to, to put a grant together and I I find myself in a bit of a, um, I guess creative rut is a paper that came out in 2014, uh, said in it all. And it's, uh, looking forward through the past, the identification of 50 priority research questions in paleoecology. It's in the Journal of Ecology. It's got an enormous authors list, uh, and we, we were saying earlier that this uh, it makes me feel a little old because I remember when uh, the community, the paleo community, was crowdsourced or uh, polled to try and identify what some of these questions were via the paleo listserv. Uh, many now it seems like many years ago, but it doesn't feel like that long ago. It's it, makes me feel a bit old to see that this came out in 2014. The other day I told my student to look up this recent paper by, by Sedna et al. And then I realized that recent was six years ago now. Yeah. So. so 
Hey, science moves at a glacial pace. <laughs> true. We know this. Yeah. That, well, that, I mean, that in some ways that's true. Six years is maybe a little bit of time in the research world, but every one of, I think every one of these questions is as, you know, is quite um, topical and current and will be for a long time moving into the future. So none of them have been fully answered. And the goal of this paper was to really identify some of these big picture questions that paleo could be used for. Um, and, and there's a lot of them. So there's, it's 50, right? Yeah. And they span the, the gamut of different uh, topics. So I don't know if we want to pick out a couple that maybe yeah, are interesting. Like two or three. Yeah. For the audience. Uh, well, we could start with number one. When did human activities first trigger global environmental change? And can we define the start of the Anthropocene with reference to these activities? <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. Next question. <laughs> Do you want me to email Alistair and tell him? <laughs> or should you? Here to here, folks. This is where you come for your big picture ideas. And yes or no, or big picture answers, sorry. Yeah, and yes sure. or no, no format. And, and this is actually a funny one, I think, because, uh, not funny one, an interesting one, because uh, in 2014, there was kind of at the beginning of this push to, I mean, we knew the Anthropocene would probably be defined as a geological period or epoch. Um, but there hadn't been as much movement as there has now in the intervening six years. And one of the ways that, you know, paleo is being considered among the, I'm not sure what the, the shortlisted number is uh, of locations that are um, being shortlisted for what's called the golden spike. That's the colloquial term for them, which would be the marker for the change in a geological time period. So in, in geological records, exposures in the rocks in different locations it's literally a physical spike that's hammered into the rock so that anyone can go and see it and study it and do those sorts of things that won't be possible from the anthropocene perspective for most cases because those are going to be not rock features they're going to be you know maybe isotope records or there's a bunch of different uh possible uh, locations could be the uh, ice cores those kind of things but uh paleo Pardon me? Bottle caps. Bottle caps, yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, among the contenders is the is a Canadian example of paleo record uh, from a varved lake uh, not too far to the west of Toronto. It's called Crawford Lake. Uh, it's a laminated record. It's a meromictic system. And uh, the onset of the Anthropocene at that location is one record that's being uh, considered by the stratigraphic uh, group and has been uh, studied through sediment cores by people like Francie McCarthy and Tim Patterson and Mike Pizarek and those those folks have taken some cores recently as one potential marker to be considered. So that's something that you know is being worked on and an amazing lake. If you if you are uh, just from a perspective of I mean, Crawford Lake, you could, we could have an episode on Crawford Lake, oh, yeah. really. Mm -hmm. um, and Jenny grew up not far from I there. I did, so. yeah. It's, it's, uh, um, I used to always go hiking at Crawford Lake and uh, never realized that it was a famous lake in paleolimnology. So it was my favorite hiking spot as a kid. Fast forward years later, I'm uh, uh, doing an honors thesis in paleolimnology with John Small, and I go back to, to visit my parents in the summer and we're walking at Crawford Lake and I see this plaque and it's describing this famous paleolimnological record from Crawford Lake. So I always wonder if, if somewhere deep down in my subconscious that 
that idea of looking at lake sediments was was there from Crawford Lake, and I just never realized it. What about okay? We don't want to dwell on every yeah. question this way, but let's pick maybe skip out of. So that was from the very first question, which is in the human environment interactions in the Anthropocene. Maybe let's mm -hmm. skip to a different whole topic. Yeah. yeah, I actually maybe just want to take okay. a quick minute to stop on question number three here, because I think it kind of is is an example of what we were talking about earlier, about how um, the basic how did the system respond to this stressor can can be expanded on to ask some broader questions. So why are some species and ecosystems more sensitive to environmental change than others and therefore respond first or to the greatest degree? Uh, this is something that we see in paleo records all the time is that one lake will respond in one way or at one time period. Another one might have a lag effect. So if you are a master's student working on one lake and you're tracking how this one lake responded to uh, cottage development, for example, um, you're answering a very important question about that specific lake, but you're also providing um, tools or, or a data set that's going to sort of be part of a broader whole that is going to be mixed with different pieces, different lakes to, to start to answer some of these broader questions about why systems respond the way that they do. Um, so so the the benefit of your research might extend beyond what what you're even aware of at the time. All right, so should we skip ahead to the next topic? Uh, heading is on biodiversity, conservation, and novel ecosystems. Maybe I'll let you pick one this time. Well, I mean, there's some overlap here. So question 15 is which factors make some systems more resilient to environmental change than others? I mean, that has similar... Um, uh, ideas to the last topic, but uh, let's finish with the last one in this case. What can paleoecology reveal about early warning signals of abrupt change? Oh, so that's this, a big one. Yeah, and this ties into what we were talking about before about um, large scale, you know, beyond the baseline conditions and and that sort of thing. So there's, I mean, there's so much that could go into uh, answering that one. I think that's a really cool question. Mm -hmm. Biodiversity over long time scales. Again, that that aspect of time is really what makes paleo so unique and and what uh where a lot of the novel contributions can come from yeah question 19 there is what drives the spatial expansion and contraction of a species over its duration so now we're thinking about the um the timeline of different species and how the, you know we don't really think about the species that we look at in as indicators in paleo records as being um all that changeable you know they are good indicators because they're they have this ph optimum and range um, but that's probably not always the case they do have some changes uh, that could potentially go on over long time scales if we think long enough then then we can see some of that maybe maybe do let's pick one more one more Okay, uh, let's pick from comparing, combining, and synthesizing information from multiple records. I'll leave it to you, guest, host. <laughs> Easy peasy. Uh, how does taxonomic and numerical resolution affect the recognition of community, meta-community, and other ecological patterns? Another big question. Yeah, and and I think that's an interesting one because... It can maybe tie back to our, since we're probably getting close to our episode time, we can tie back to what we were discussing before related to the monitoring record and the ways in which you um, kind of, uh, you know, some, some paleo records have inherent 
differences in how we identify species or how we group species that may not be the same as the monitoring record and trying to bring those together and understand sort of ecosystem changes can really depend on what we can do with the paleo record there. And that's an important one because that, again, that's, that speaks to a methodological aspect of, of paleolimnology. So if we can better tie the monitoring record to the paleolimnology record, then we, in a sense, get the best of both worlds. We get the high resolution data of the monitoring record and we get the long-term perspective, the, the smoothing effect of the paleo record. So the, that's why so much work, uh, something Adam knows well, that's why so much work and effort goes into trying to um, find best practices to combine paleolimnology with monitoring. And yeah, and it's tough and it comes back to paleo being, you know, the history book analogy you have, you know, one letter per page going through time, um, you know, matching that up with, you know, the, the multitude of species that you might see in a toe net, for example, but when you're only looking at post-abdominal claws, um, they get lumped in different ways and, uh, no, it can definitely be challenging reconciling those two things and but you've answered some pretty big questions by doing just that maybe (laughs) i'd like to think so yes that's a that's a pitch for the seminal papers uh Mm. discussion which will come jesse orsky at all 20 2008 was that science just yesterday 20 20 2016 being a long time ago uh (laughs) You know, 2008 seems yeah. like yesterday. Some of our listeners probably in high school, <laughs> grade school. Again, you're making this assumption. We have <laughs> listeners. Well, <laughs> we would know if they would send us some uh, some correspondence. <laughs> no. Uh, well, we can see the stats, and some people are listening. Um, and we thank you. It's if definitely you are. not me. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're on our internet connection, so actually, I don't think you count <laughs> because it's the same one that uploads. So. Um, <laughs> You don't count <laughs> in the listener count. But thanks for coming on and having, uh, uh, I think, an interesting discussion. I don't think we answered any questions, but we asked some. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the whole point. Yeah, no, I don't think the purpose was to really answer questions. No, just no. talk about the act of asking questions a little bit and what goes into it. And, you know, some of the stuff is straightforward and intuitive and some of it isn't. And uh, until you kind of wade in, some of those subtleties can be lost uh, when you're walking through the door of not just paleo, I just think research and research in general. Um, and you know, they're tricky and frustrating getting the right questions, but it's also most of the fun stems from being able to answer interesting questions. So thanks. Um, and being, being a captive, well, not really a captive, but I mean, right now, kind of in some ways, uh, (laughs) Uh, a um, person who lives in the same house as the the podcast studio. I'm sure we'll hear Jenny again mm-hmm. in the not too distant future. One half of the podcast studio. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> um, anything else? Uh, what, what are we going to talk about next week? What have we forgotten? Any idea? Um, I thought we're going to kind of come to an end on this if we're dividing everything into. Um, a couple of bite-sized arcs, and this one has been into the weeds of a couple of different ideas. We're going to explore a little bit of uh, the role of scientific societies. Right? It was the next thing on our list. Cool. That sounds um, good. Before we move on into, uh, you know, 
bigger questions as opposed to deeper. Yeah, how we can kind of small disseminate some of our ideas is the plan for the third arc. Um, yeah, so Scientific Societies is next. Uh, if you are listening and you want to get in contact with us, you can reach us on Twitter at Core Ideas Paleo, P-A-L-E-O. So as the Canadians and the Americans spell it. Not as the way it's spelt in the Sedin et al. paper, which is uh, primarily English authors, though uh, not all of them. Um, and you can always send us longer form stuff at the uh, email address, which is coreideaspodcast at gmail.com. And uh, the show notes go up at uh, coreideas.ajesiorski.ca. Um, and uh, that's where there'll be links to uh, the papers that we talked about today, both in terms of Sedin et al. 2014 and uh, one or two Crawford Lake um, uh, links can go up there as well, just to give anyone uh, some interest in the background for some of the things that we were talking about today. Yeah, and those and, are all and really good papers. Theme pond at all, of course. <laughs> oh yes. Right. Um, um, <laughs> give some background because it is uh, required listening for this. For the listener, there not, will be a that's test. That's not true. That's not true. <laughs> that doesn't make me sound very good. If I would say that. Um, But thanks for listening, everyone, and take care out there, and uh, we will catch you soon. Okay, thank you, and thanks again for coming in, Jenny. And uh, thanks. Until next time, uh, stay safe. safe.